I, I always love reading the resurrection stories. They are my favorites in, in all of the gospels. And um, I think I love reading them in part just because I love imagining my way into it. I always feel um, a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever th thrown a surprise party for somebody else where everybody else, you know, you, you're in the know and that person's clearly in the dark and you say, oh, what are you doing for your birth? And they say, hey, oh, nothing much. I'm just going to have a quiet one this year. And you know secretly that there's going to be 50 people crammed into the house. It's going to be this huge celebration. Um, that's how I feel when I meet the, the followers and the friends of Jesus at the moment after the crucifixion, after Jesus has been put into the tomb, but before they've met him. Uh, and before they've realized they, they're, 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 they're a bit, well, they're obviously incredibly down, distraught. They've lost their savior, they've lost their friend and they don't know what's about to happen. But obviously we, as the readers, we know how it turns out. And uh, one of those moments, one of those stories is in John chapter 20. And this is when Jesus meets Mary Magdalene. So I'll just read it to you. John 20, starting verse 11, it says this. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And Mary is so clearly distraught and besides herself, she doesn't even do a double take that she's talking to angels. She just answers them like she would any other person. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all, that he, all these things that he had said to her. And so uh, we get to be there almost at the moment of surprise, the moment of revelation where her eyes are opened and she suddenly realises who Jesus is. And that happens not just to Mary, but to the disciples, to um, all sorts of people in the resurrection stories. And in many ways, the resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of Jesus. It's the proof that he is who he says he is. Many people throughout history have made these massive, grandiose claims for themselves. And Jesus um, made enormous claims for himself that in coming to know him, we'd come to know eternal life that he is the way, the truth and the life, uh, that he and the Father are one. But the difference with Jesus is he was killed and three days later he punched a hole out of the back of death and walked out into the light, walked out into life. And it's, it's the proof that he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do. And our entire faith is, is not a set of beliefs. It is a trust in a person. It's the trust in the person of Jesus. He is our hope. And there is no more sure, steadfast, faithful person, no, no person who is both mighty and merciful, better than Jesus. There's, there's no better person to have our hope in than the risen Jesus. 
Um, but for lots of us, uh, we call ourselves Christians and we believe that Jesus is alive. We still sometimes, and I know this isn't always and it's not everybody, but for many of us, we struggle to trust that he's good. We believe that he's alive, but we're not always sure that he's good and that he's on our side, particularly when life is challenging. And uh, again, just in this encounter that Jesus has with Mary, we see that Jesus is alive, but we also see what the alive Jesus, what the risen Jesus is like and what he's up to. So one of the things that struck me as I was reading it is that Jesus says to Mary, go to my brothers. He's talking about his um, disciples at that point. Go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. And I was just really taken by the fact that Jesus calls his disciples brothers in that moment. And everything that that word suggests. Because if there is ever a moment for Jesus to uh, express disappointment in the disciples, it's the resurrection. This is the time. Uh, we, just, we would have been reading the scriptures, uh, you know, we have been reading them as a church. Uh, uh, in the run up to the cross, Jesus was let down by his disciples. He was betrayed by his disciples. His disciples, he took them off into the garden to pray with him. They couldn't even stay awake to pray. In this moment of when he's sweating blood, they're fast asleep. And Peter denies ever knowing him, calling down curses on heaven, like swearing I've never seen this guy before in my life. And so um, I don't know about you, but, but if I was Jesus in that moment, my, this would be my opportunity to let them know what I thought about how badly they let me down. Even if I wasn't going to be directly aggressive, you can bet I would be passive aggressive. Go to my disciples and tell them how much I sacrificed for them when they ran away. But that's not what he does. He doesn't even call them in this moment disciples. He calls them brothers. He's just been through utter agony, the worst moment of his life. He's been separated from his father for the first time in eternity during that time on the cross. He's come out of the other side of it. He's emerged victorious. And what he does not do is turn his back on those who turned their back on him when he was suffering. No, Jesus in his glory, he comes, as it were, even closer to them. And he comes with gentleness. He comes with tremendous kindness. And he says, you are my brothers. And this is how Jesus speaks of us. We are the sisters and the brothers of Jesus. And I was, just, I was just thinking about that earlier this morning. As I was thinking about it, it just, what struck me about it is just the closeness of that word. That, that that would be how he refers to me. I'm not his employee. I'm not his, his the, the guy that he knows who's kind of on first name terms with, but there's a quite a lot of distance between us. Just, just one of a crowd, just one of many. That's you know, one of my associates. That's not how he thinks of me. He doesn't think of me in terms of what I can produce or what I can do. He calls me his brother. I'm his, I'm his relative. I'm his immediate family. We're part of the immediate family of Jesus. And something in me wants to say, but I don't deserve it. And, and the thing is, we don't. Of course we don't. It was never about deserving it. It was always about a gift. And he's excited to give us this gift. It was the reason he went through the suffering of the cross. And it's not just that Jesus becomes our brother because he says the message is, go and tell them that I'm going back to my father and your father. 
So the relationship that Jesus has had with his father forever now becomes the relationship that we have. He doesn't stop with, you're my brother, but also the the, the father is your father now. And so if God the son causes sisters and he causes brothers, God the father causes daughters and he causes sons. We're right in the heart of God, the family of God. And God the Holy Spirit calls us home. He calls us mine because he comes to live with us. This is what the risen Jesus is like. He calls us sisters and brothers. Here's another thing um, that hit me. Jesus says uh, in his message, he says, go and tell them that I'm ascending to the Father. Now his return to heaven, his ascension to take up his place at the right hand of the Father isn't going to happen yet. This is the first day of the resurrection you know there's another 40 days where Jesus is appearing to different people in different places and making himself known to them so there's still quite a way before he ascends to be with the father but it's like that's clearly what's on his mind in this moment he says I'm going to ascend to be with the father in the same way that if you talk to somebody who's about to get married even if they're not going to be getting married for six months they they, they can't help but I'm getting married that's the primary thing they're thinking about and I was trying to work out why is it that Jesus is so excited about ascending to, to be with the Father. And of course, in part, it will be he'll be looking forward to, to that moment. But, but it's, he's in perfect union with the Father now. And I think what it comes back to is what we find out about what Jesus is up to now. Because although when he, when he ascends, it's the end of his earthly work, you know, everything that he did while he was here in person on earth, it's not the end of his work. Because Jesus is alive and he's hard at work now and he's doing now his heavenly work. And in various places in the New Testament, we get this window, as it were, opening up into heaven. We get a bit of a live stream about what he's up to in heaven. And one of the places, just a little throwaway line almost from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says this. He always lives. Why? To make intercession for them, to make intercession for us. In other words, what is the living Jesus up to now? He's praying for us. He's talking to the Father about us. He's he's praying on our behalf. He's praying that we would be unified as his church. He's praying that we would be filled with the Spirit. He's praying that we would be witnesses in his kingdom. He's praying for for our courage. He's praying for us. And I think he's excited, again, having been through everything on the cross for us to then continue his work for us, to return, to ascend to heaven, to begin to pray for us. And um, uh, again, when we think about that and we see this sort of picture of Jesus talking to the Father, praying to the Father on our behalf, one of the reasons, what, what can come into our heads sometimes is we can think the Father's reluctant. The Father is somehow cool towards us and Jesus is up there persuading him, twisting his arm. Go on, please help them out. Go on, please bless them. But that's absolutely not what this picture is meant to communicate to us. It's not about the coolness of the Father, to quote Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly. It's not about the coolness of the Father. It's about the warmth of the Son. It's just, he just can't help but talk about us and talk about blessing us and wanting to to help us and to lift us up and to serve us. In the same way that when Mike occasionally comes up to me and suggests to me that I should give my children chocolate, he actually knows, we joke about it a lot, but he actually knows that, that, that my deepest desire as their father is to give them all the good things I can. 
And so when he says to, to me about giving them more chocolate, he knows he is pushing on an open door. Uh, in the same way, it, the, the father's deepest delight is to bless them. When the son says, why don't we fill them with the spirit? Why don't we give them courage to be witnesses? The father's just like, that's, a, I've, that's all I've longed to do. But Jesus, who is alive today, cannot help but cheer us on and pray for us. Think about it like, um, imagine you're, you're, you're at a track race and your little sister, you have a little sister and she's in the race and uh, it's like 1,500 metres. And what would happen if, if she set off in the race is, wouldn't we, as her, um, we would be cheering her on. We would be shouting, we'd be screaming, we'd be, come on, you can do it. And then imagine it got to a point in the race where she has clearly before, even though she hasn't crossed the finish line yet, she's obviously won it, right? She's miles ahead of everybody else. Do we, in a moment like that, sit down quietly and shut our mouths? I don't think so. What we would do in a moment like that, even though she's clearly already won, is we would stand, if it were possible, even taller as we, taller as we see her running down the home straight and we would be shouting ourselves hoarse, encouragement, affirmation, shouts of victory, shouts of we're with you in this. We would be, we would be yelling our heads off, um, just, just like willing her on every single step of the race. We have an older brother like that. That's what Jesus is doing. My name, your name is on his lips right now before the Father and he is championing us and cheering us on. And then finally, if he's cheering us on, Jesus is also, uh, he's, he's coming to us, he's meeting with us. Just like he did Mary at the tomb. He came and he met with her in that moment. And we have this promise as his people that he is coming back, that one day he will return. And we're told that um, ultimately because he lives, we too live. And one way that I find it helpful to picture the, the good news, the gospel, um, what we've received is like a, having a joint bank account with Jesus. Everything he has, we get, we share. In the same way that, you know, Beth and I, we have a joint bank account. So if Beth wins 50 million pounds, I'm going to be going uh, tomorrow to buy myself a Ferrari. And the reason for that is if she wins it, we have a bank account that's shared, I win it too. Well, Jesus's victory is our victory. His defeat of sin becomes our victory over sin. His defeat of death becomes our victory over death. And so because he has eternal life, we walk into and receive eternal life. And when we, when we see Jesus and we, 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 we're captured by who he is, what we're looking at is we're looking at a picture of our future. Because although we're not like him in our character yet, that is ultimately what he's in the business of making us into, to make him like himself in that way. Whole, secure, free, loving, knowing how deeply he is loved by the Father. That's our future. We're looking at him. But also someone who lives forever. He lives for always. And um, there's this weird thing in the Bible that it's almost like beholding him and seeing him as he is. That in itself has the potency to transform us. In the same way that if we stand out in the sunshine, the sun 
you know, it so has the power to warm us up and it has the power even to change, you know, to give us a tan. And Well, when we stand near him, he changes us. And we're told of the day when this is going to come, the final day when he returns. And there's, it's not an accident that this encounter with Mary happens in a garden. At the start of the Bible, the scene opens, as it were, in a garden where God is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And here we have Jesus in a garden, in the cool of the dawn, walking with Mary. It's the first day of new creation. And it's the beginning of what God is doing in his kingdom. And we walk into it. And so, to, to put it more simply, we're going to live with him forever. He is the promise and he's the guarantee of that. He comes to us. And just as Mary heard his voice calling her name, one day all of us will also hear his voice calling our name. And we'll walk into eternal life with him. Brothers and sisters have gone ahead of us, but that's where we're going. Um, but this coming to us isn't just about the future, it's about now. And so uh, he meets Mary. He then meets the disciples in their fear. They didn't even go looking for his body. They just hid in the room. He meets Thomas in his doubt. He meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who are walking completely the wrong way. And he actually walks with them seven miles um, away from Jerusalem. He comes and meets with us in our fear and in our confusion. He doesn't wait for us to work it out and come to him. He comes to find us. And when he finds them, what he does is not give them a pep talk or give them some solid good advice. He doesn't give them a few pointers. He basically, he's giving them himself. He's meeting with them. And in those encounters, they are changed and they are transformed. The key to being changed is meeting him. And I say this as a person who loves self-help stuff. I've got a whole shelf of it in my room of books about how not to be a perfectionist and how to improve your diet and how to do this and how to do that, how to time manage better. And I could still do with practicing some of the things in those books, but real transformation comes from meeting him. The way one person described it uh, is again, they compared it to the sunshine. And they said, imagine you wake up and everything's covered in snow, which might happen tomorrow if the weather forecast is to be trusted. But, but you, you wake up and everything's covered in snow. Now you could, if you want to get rid of the snow, you could shovel everything and you could get gritters out and you could put in all of that effort and you still would only cover, you know, uncover a fraction of the surface of the country. But when the sun comes up and when the sun shines, it all melts away. And real transformation happens not when we try hard, not through our determination, and our choices matter, but that's not the secret. It happens in his presence. It happens by admitting we can't change ourselves and depending upon him and trusting his love will transform us, which it does. Happy Easter, Jesus is risen, and the Jesus who is alive, he causes his sisters and his brothers our name is on his lips as he prays for us right now. And we have that promise that one day he will come and we'll walk into eternal life with him. But also we know that he meets us even now, just where we are, with his love and with his kindness.